Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Earlier this year, we finished up our West Coast tour, and our last stop there was in San Francisco. Whenever we have a break on the tour, we have kind of a choice of where do we want to spend our night off in the place where we just finished a show or the place where we're doing the next show. And I decided since I had never been to San Francisco to choose the one where we were doing the next show. I spent my night off there. And while I was in San Francisco, I stumbled across the San Francisco Cable Car Museum 100% by happenstance. And right in the front of the museum, I was immediately captivated by a plaque dedicated to someone who was known as the Cable Car Lady. Cable cars, of course, are an iconic part of San Francisco. And San Francisco's cable cars are the last working system of their kind in the world. The reason they haven't been completely replaced by more modern modes of transportation is largely because of the advocacy of women, and in particular, the advocacy of Fridell Klusman, who is the person who became known as the cable car lady. Spain established what would become the city of San Francisco in September of 1776, initially as a military post. A mission, commonly known as Mission Dolores, opened that October. Its more formal name is Mission San Francisco de Assis, and like the city itself, it was named for St. Francis of Assisi. The mission's purpose was to Christianize the native population, and it was built using conscripted labor from Northern California's native peoples. The area became part of Mexico after the Mexican War of Independence, which ended in 1821. But it was 1835 before there was an actual European settlement in the area beyond that mission and military post. That settlement was the village of Yerba Buena. In 1846, 11 years after Yerba Buena was established, Captain John B. Montgomery captured it for the United States during the Mexican-American War. On January 30th of 1847, it was renamed San Francisco. San Francisco became part of the United States along with the rest of California under the terms of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which ended that war. At first, San Francisco's population was quite small. By the end of the Mexican-American War, there were about 500 people, including Europeans, Africans, Native Americans, and Pacific Islanders. But after the gold rush started in 1849, the population of San Francisco boomed. We talked about this a little bit in our Levi Strauss episode. And suddenly tens of thousands of people were flocking to the city hoping to strike it rich, or to make lots of money off of the people who were hoping to strike it rich. The city grew incredibly rapidly, and by 1870, its population was about 150,000 people. And one of its ongoing challenges was transportation and shipping. If you have never been to San Francisco, it is very, very hilly. Even if you've seen footage of the city in movies or on TV, the steepness of some of the hills can be really incredibly startling when you experience them for the first time in person. It was a huge, huge challenge to safely move people and cargo up and down all these hills, especially in the winter when the city could be very damp. And all of this was also compounded by the fact that the terrain was very sandy. Andrew Smith Hallity gets the credit for coming up with San Francisco's famous solution to this problem. Hallity was born Andrew Smith and was named after his father. And he took the name Hallity later on in honor of his uncle and godfather. 
So Andrew Smith, the father, and Andrew Smith Halliday, the son, had immigrated to the United States from the UK during the gold rush, although Smith returned home in 1853. Halliday had been a tinkerer since he was a boy, and Smith was an engineer and inventor. And some of Smith's patents were for wire rope, something that Halliday had worked with him on, and which other inventors had been refining and developing as well. As the name suggests, wire rope was like hemp and rope, but it was made with wire and consequently was a lot stronger. Since its initial development in the early 19th century, wire rope had started to replace hemp and rope for tasks that needed something that was particularly strong. So the Royal Navy had started replacing hemp and rope with wire in the 1830s, and soon it was also being used to pull heavy mine cars that were loaded with ore and to support aerial trams and mountainous areas, Suspension bridges, including the Brooklyn Bridge, were also using wire rope for their suspension cables. Halliday started working on an idea to employ wire rope in a mass transit system in the early 1870s. He was reportedly inspired to do so a few years earlier after witnessing a tragic incident. He had seen a team of horses pulling a heavy load up one of San Francisco's steep hills, being aggressively driven on by their handler, only to lose their footing on wet cobblestones. And he hoped that he could work out a system that would be safe for moving people in freight, especially on those steep hills. He wanted to eradicate, quote, the great cruelty and hardship to the horses engaged in that work. Halliday's idea was also informed by his time in the mining industry, which happened after he arrived in the United States. He had worked on a flume that transported mining cars up and down a hill, with the loaded cars being pulled up by the weight of the empty cars coming back down. He'd also worked on aerial tramways and suspension bridges. All of this relied on wire rope, and all this work he was doing was what launched the manufacturing of wire rope in California. He's like a pre-Disney Imagineer with the ways he comes up with to move (laughs) stuff around. Yeah, a lot of his inventions were pretty ingenious. Yeah. When it came to San Francisco's hilly terrain, he thought he could create an underground system of wire ropes wound around a series of pulleys to pull cars above ground. And he called this underground system an endless wire ropeway. And it required him to refine his wire rope until it had enough flexibility and tensile strength to handle all of this winding and moving without breaking. In this system, a powerhouse would drive the cable through the endless wire ropeway. This was basically a bunch of giant wheels that would move the cables as they turned and the system of pulleys that held everything at the right tension. Although today's powerhouse is electric, the first powerhouses in the 19th century were steam-powered. So keeping all of this running required huge amounts of steam and huge amounts of coal to power the boilers that were making all the steam. At street level, the system involved a set of steel tracks for the cable cars to run on. And between these tracks is a slot. Under that slot is that continually moving cable. And we could get into a lot more detail here, uh, and there are several different setups of how all this works, which have evolved over the years. But just to get a general sense of it, a grip operator on the streetcar itself operates controls that grip the cable through the slot, and that cable pulls the car. And today, that cable moves at a steady 9.5 miles per hour. That's about 15 kilometers per hour. 
As a side note, the word for the person who does this job, gripman, is still widely in use because it's a job that's been almost exclusively done by men. Only two women have ever worked as grip operators in San Francisco. The first was Fannie Mae Barnes, who finished her training in 1997 and started working in 1998. The grip operator also lets go of the cable when necessary. For example, when two cables for different lines cross over each other, or when there's a curve or grade that the car should coast through rather than being pulled. The operator would also let go at the end of the line so that the car could coast onto a turntable, which would then be used to turn around and point the car the other direction to go back down the same track. Cable cars also have several brakes for things like going down steep hills and for emergency stops. Halliday, by the time he started working on this, was well-known in San Francisco. He was a respected businessman and engineer. He was president of the Mechanics Institute. But at the same time, a lot of people thought this whole cable car idea was completely cockamamie. So he had to struggle to get funding before finally forming the Clay Street Hill Railroad along with several other partners. Their first attempted line ran up Knob Hill. It was a distance of 2,800 feet, that's about 853 meters, with a rise of 307 feet, or 94 meters. The passenger car looked a lot like the horse-drawn passenger cars of the day, with a grip car called an open dummy replacing the horse. They had a deadline to finish this first stretch of cable car line, and that deadline was August 1st, 1873, They had been working on it for quite a while, and as this deadline got closer and closer, they got more and more frantic trying to finish it on time. Even after working overnight, they ultimately missed it by a day. But the first test run on August 2nd went exactly as planned, with one exception. After the trip up the hill, which happened at around midnight, the car was all set to go back down around 4 or 5 a.m. But the operator was too terrified to do it. The hill was just so steep, and it was very foggy and dark, so Halliday took the car back down Knob Hill himself. I completely understand that fear. That hill is steep. <laughs> it is, and I mean, I won't even, like, ride rollerblades down an incline. Like, I understand completely. <laughs> even though they had missed their deadline, once that successful first trip happened, people started to get really excited about Halliday's invention. It opened for public service on September 1st, 1873. For the next four years, Clay Street Hill Railroad was the only cable car company in San Francisco, although many more followed after that. Ultimately, eight railroad companies lay 53 miles of track over the 1870s and 1880s. Other cities also built their own cable car lines as well. Halliday's original Clay Street line in San Francisco was dismantled and replaced in 1891. On April 18, 1906, the great earthquake and fire did serious damage to the cable car system, including destroying many of the cars. And by that point, another innovation had come along, electric streetcars, which had been developed in 1888, just a year before the last cable car tracks were laid down in San Francisco. The electric streetcars were more efficient, and they were much less expensive to build and maintain. So... After the great earthquake and fire, most of the cable car lines were replaced with electric streetcars. But if you compared a cable car's performance to an electric streetcar in 1906, the cable car could still do a much better job at managing San Francisco's steepest hills. So as most of the cable car system was replaced with electric streetcars, the hilliest cable car routes were repaired and rebuilt as cable cars. 
Streetcars continued to improve, though, which meant that after a while, they were better able to manage San Francisco's hills as well. More and more cable car lines shut down, replaced by electric streetcars and other forms of transit. By the 1940s, there were only a few cable car lines left. We will get to how they almost went away entirely after a sponsor break. In 1944, the Market Street Railway Company in San Francisco was going to shut down. Voters approved a measure for the city to buy the company, giving San Francisco control of the Powell, Mason, and Washington-Jackson lines. The mayor at the time was Roger Lapham, and after the Market Street Railway handed over all of its assets to the city, he had a photo op piloting one of the cars that was formerly owned by Market Street all through the town. But Lapham's relationship to the cable cars turned out to be fraught. He had campaigned on the idea of running the city in a businesslike way, modernizing and improving efficiency as the nation came out of World War II. In 1946, the city raised rates on the cable cars from $0.07 to $0.10, hoping to make the system self-sustaining. On top of that steep increase, the hike went into effect while the operators were all on strike. And this contributed to a call for a recall election, with Lapham himself signing the petition that called for it. Although the city did hold a vote, the measure failed. 59% of voters rejected the recall. Seven cents to 10 cents probably doesn't sound like that giant of an increase to a modern ear, but like that's a huge percentage. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, almost 50% increase. Yeah. If you if you amped that up to bigger numbers, like if you were paying, for example, this isn't a real number, $70 a month for parking, and then it was suddenly 100 the next month, you would be alarmed. Yeah. <laughs> That's a huge jump. Then in 1947, after all of that had happened, as part of a citywide effort to modernize and improve efficiency, Lapham started talking about shutting the cable cars down completely and replacing them with buses. By that point, the city was operating only the Powell Street cable car line, California Street Cable Railroad, which had been formed by some wealthy businessmen to get to their mansions on Knob Hill, had another three lines. And those were the only cable cars that were left in the city. So what the city was talking about shutting down was those city-owned Powell Street lines. On January 27, 1947, Lapham said this in his annual message to the Board of Supervisors, which is the city's governing body. Quote, I know there are strong sentimental reasons for keeping this old, ingenious, and novel mode of transportation. The fact remains that the sentimentalists do not have to pay the bills and do not have to run the risk of being charged with criminal negligence in the very possible event a cable breaks and a car gets loose on one of our steep hills. This supposedly very possible event of a cable break was really not all that likely, though. Although there had been accidents on the cable cars, as is the case with any mode of transportation, these accidents had not been caused by cable breaks. Fraying sections of the cable were repaired or replaced before total breaks could happen, and totally snapped cables are extremely rare. News spread immediately about the mayor's plan to replace the cable cars with buses. The front page of the San Francisco Chronicle on January 28th said, Junk the cable cars. Lapham says the antiquated system endangers lives. Another headline the next day read, Cable cars on way out. City orders super buses. Days of the grip men are nearly over. 
officials tired of operating at a loss. But the news from City Hall became a little disjointed from there. On January 30th, James H. Turner, who was the utilities manager, made a statement that totally contradicted what the mayor had just said. He claimed that the 10 buses that the city had ordered weren't supposed to replace the cable cars entirely, that they were just supposed to pick up a few difficult and hilly routes. He said, quote, the fact that someone in his office said that the new buses would be used on Powell Street was just sort of a rumor. (laughs) And then Public Works Director Harry Vincano said that there was no way that the incoming buses could safely climb the hills in question in wet weather contradicting both the utilities manager and the mayor's previous statements. He said the only way to make those hills safe for buses was a $24,000 refurbishment job to resurface those hilly streets, and no money had been earmarked for such a project. An editorial in the San Francisco Chronicle on February 3rd read, quote, bus lines would be a good deal less expensive, but against this saving should be weighted, First, passenger comfort, which has some money value even if it cannot be demonstrated. And second, the market value of an institution which helps make the city stand out among cities of the world. Later in February, reports started to circulate that voters were going to get to choose the fate of the cable cars. But it turned out that news was not about the city-owned Powell lines. It was about those privately owned cable cars that belonged to California Street Cable Railroad. The voters were going to get to decide whether the city bought the California street lines, not whether it kept the Powell lines. And if the city did buy the California lines, the plan was to operate those but shut down Powell Street because the Powell street lines were the more expensive ones. In the midst of all this chaos, two organizations came together and held a meeting on March 4th. The two host organizations were the San Francisco Federation of the Arts and the California Spring Blossom and Wildflower Association. Also in attendance at this meeting were the leaders of 27 different women's civic groups from San Francisco. And the result of this meeting was the formation of the Citizens Committee to Save the Cable Cars, also known as the Save the Cable Cars Committee. Its leader was Fridell Klusman of the Federation of the Arts. Klusman was a longtime resident of the Telegraph Hill neighborhood. She was an artist who had studied at the California School of Fine Arts, which is now San Francisco Art Institute. In addition to her civic involvement, she'd been a member of the San Francisco Women Artists and the San Francisco Artists Association. Even though she was a fairly private person by nature, she threw herself into the public effort to save the cable cars. What followed was a series of dueling reports from City Hall and from the committee. The city claimed that the cars were unsafe, but the committee claimed the opposite, with transit authorities actually backing them up on the idea that especially when it came to those extreme hills, the cable cars were a safe way to travel. Another issue was traffic congestion. The cable cars run on the same roadways that cars use, and the mayor's office argued that having cars and streetcars and cable cars all using the same space was causing too many traffic jams. The mayor's office correctly pointed out that the cable car system was operating at a daily loss and claimed that the proposed bus replacement would be profitable. The cable cars committee countered that the year before, Tourism had generated more than $34 million in revenues for the city, and that getting rid of the cable cars would be a blow to that industry. The committee also noted that the bus system as a whole was not profitable at all, with the cable cars, while offering much more limited service, 
also losing a lot less money than the buses did. A statement of retention of the Powell Street system, which was released by the Cable Cars Committee, put it this way, quote, No one suggests the discontinuance of buses because they are losing money. Any present monetary loss in the operation of the cable cars is more than compensated for by the wide publicity they give San Francisco throughout the world. Lapham kept hammering on the idea that the cable cars were outdated and obsolete, including having one drawn through the city by a horse just to make a point. Klusman kept pointing to the uniqueness of the cable cars and the city's fondness for them and the character that they brought to San Francisco as well as their importance to the tourism industry. Meanwhile, women across the city were gathering signatures on a petition to put this matter to a vote. This dispute between the city government and the Cable Cars Committee became national news. It was covered in publications like Time, Life, and the Saturday Evening Post. Glenn Hurlbert with Greg McRitchie and his orchestra released a song called The Cable Car Concerto. Celebrities started announcing that they wouldn't come to San Francisco if there were no more cable cars. I read a whole collection of reports in the New York Times that had this just delighted tone to the whole spectacle, with one of them calling the cable car system, quote, anachronistic but eminently likable. That'd be a great uh, epitaph. (laughs) Richard Gump, who was head of the retail enterprise Gumps, put an ad in Time magazine asking for the opinions of people outside of San Francisco. And all but one of the sacks and sacks of letters that came in said to keep those cars. And as a side note, Gumps was founded during the gold rush, and it was still in business as of this recording, although there are some news reports from August of this year, which is 2018, uh, that say it may be out of business by the end of this year due to financial problems. Ultimately, it started to look like all of that signature gathering and knocking on doors and making calls and speaking that Klusman and the committee were doing was going to pay off. A headline in the March 6, 1947 edition of the San Francisco Chronicle read, Cable cars get a boost. San Francisco women may force city to let voters decide. On March 13th, Eleanor Roosevelt wrote about the dispute in her My Day column during a stay in San Francisco. She said that she understood why people were so passionate about it, because the cars were one of the first things that people thought of when it came to San Francisco. But it also went on to say that she thought the bay and the bridges really offered the most charm. After months of effort, Klisman and the Cable Car Committee were successful. They gathered 40,000 signatures on their petition, and it was announced that San Francisco voters would get to weigh in on Proposition 10 in November of 1947. This proposition would amend the city's charter to make the San Francisco Municipal Railway and the Public Utilities Commission responsible for maintaining the cable car lines. On Election Day, more than 166,000 people voted yes on Proposition 10. Just a little more than 51,000 voted no. This wasn't the end of the struggle over the streetcars, though, and we'll get to that after another quick sponsor break. Proposition 10 was something of a temporary reprieve when it came to San Francisco's cable cars. There was trouble of one kind or another for about four decades. Everything from budgets to maintenance problems to city officials trying again to winnow down how many cable car lines the city had. 
1952, the city finally took over the California Street Cable Railroads after Lloyd's of London canceled its insurance policy following an accident. At first, the city continued to operate all of the California street lines. But it turned out that, contrary to what they'd been thinking back in 1947, these lines were even more expensive than the Powell Street lines. In 1954, the issue was again put to a vote, with two competing propositions on the ballot. Proposition J, which would have kept all of the lines running at full capacity, was defeated. Proposition E, which included the two Powell Street lines and one California line, won by a very narrow margin. This had involved another spirited campaign, with Klusman once again returning to the public eye and, as one example, the Playhouse Theater Group riding in cars in costume, carrying signs protesting the idea of shutting any of the cable cars down. In the end, the three lines that remained after the passage of Proposition E were the ones that still exist today. The Powell-Hyde line, the Powell-Mason line, and the California line. Also in the 1950s, rice the San Francisco treat, was introduced by the Domenico family of San Francisco, and the famous jingle, complete with the sound of a cable car bell, followed in 1961. The product packaging still features a silhouette of a cable car, and the product itself has been advertised on the sides of cable cars. And as another side note, every year since 1955, cable car operators have had a bell ringing competition. Now I want rice It is delicious. In 1961, a plaque was unveiled in Klusman's honor at the cable car powerhouse on Mason Street. The inscription is long, but we're going to read the whole thing because it's quite charming. And it reads... On the morning of January 28, 1947, San Franciscans read the news that a fleet of buses would replace the cable cars operating on Powell Street. In this almost casual manner, San Franciscans, who have a feeling and an affection for their cable cars, were informed that the most colorful transportation line in their city was to perish. Indeed, the Powell Street line, starting at a turntable on Market Street, slipping past Union Square and creasing the Knob and Russian Hills on its meandering way to the bay, might well be the most colorful street railway in the world. Now it was announced the cable cars would be scrapped and their tracks torn up. A rumble of indignation was heard throughout San Francisco. At first, this anger remained directionless for want of a leader with energy, sentiment, dedication, and an intelligent sense of history. It was not long, however, before the embodiment of these qualities came forward in the person of Fridel Klusman. San Franciscans had found their general. Mrs. Klusman organized the Citizens Committee to save the cable cars, and the campaign against indifference and short-sightedness was on. Mrs. Klusman and her forces maintained that a life-and-death decision about the cable cars should be made by the people and not by administrative order. Against odds and disappointments which would have discouraged a less determined person, Mrs. Klusman's efforts secured a place for the Powell Street line on the ballot, and while the nation, fascinated by this sentimental and nostalgic struggle, looked on, San Francisco went to the polls and by an overwhelming majority said, Save the cable cars. This and future generations are in debt to the cable car lady, as Mrs. Klusman is affectionately known, and to the timely forces which she organized. She not only preserved a way of transportation that continued to serve and delight, but also saved the city's trademark. 
1964, San Francisco's cable cars became a national historic landmark. There's actually one other streetcar designated as a national historic landmark in the United States. That is the New Orleans St. Charles streetcar line, which is an electric streetcar. We tried to take that streetcar while we were in New Orleans, and we failed because they were all full. <laughs> yeah, we were we were trying to do a leisurely look-around ride, and it kind of became apparent that people who actually lived in the city needed it <laughs> because it was already crowded with people doing a leisurely look-around ride. Yeah. So we did not cram on. So that one was designated as a landmark in 2014 and is the oldest continually operating streetcar in the world. By 1964, politicians were well aware that messing with the cable cars was likely to be a hugely unpopular move. As one example, Mayor George Moscone remarked, anyone attempting to fool with the cable cars in any shape or form is apt to be run out of town on a spike. But while it was taken for granted that trying to shut down the cable cars would be a deeply unpopular move, voters weren't all that enthusiastic about approving funding to keep them well-maintained. This is like the trial of public transportation everywhere. Being designated a National Historic Landmark had protected the cable car's existence, but it hadn't really protected them from a lack of maintenance and upkeep. So by the 1970s, the cable car system was facing very, very serious problems. Everything about the whole cable car system had deteriorated through everything from normal wear and tear to earthquakes. The result was a massive restoration project in the early 1980s, spearheaded by then-Mayor Dianne Feinstein. The total renovation took 21 months, during which the cars were shut down. It cost about $60 million. The system finally reopened on June 21, 1984. That system is also currently undergoing a gearbox renovation that has involved a few multi-day shutdowns. Fredel Klusman died October 22, 1986, in her home on Telegraph Hill at the age of 90. Diane Feinstein called her, quote, one of San Francisco's truly modern heroines. In 1997, the turnaround at the end of the Powell Hyde line at Fisherman's Wharf was named the Fredel Klusman Memorial Turnaround. Klusman's effort to save the cable cars in 1947 also led to the establishment of San Francisco Beautiful that year. She became its first president and remained so until her death. That organization still exists today and advocates for civic beauty, neighborhood character, and accessible public art. Today, the San Francisco Municipal Railway, or Muni, is responsible for San Francisco's three cable car lines. There are two types of actual cars still in regular use. The California Line's cars are larger and they're open on both ends, with the open spaces having a platform where people can stand and hold on. The two Powell Lines have smaller cars that have this open area only on one end. There are also a few restored cars from other models that come out on special occasions. For the most part, these two types of cars run the same way, although the cars on the California line can go in either direction. So when one gets to the end of the line, it just runs in the other direction on the way back with the flip of a switch. The cars on the two Powell lines run in one direction only, so when they get to the end of the line, they are manually turned around on a turntable. The powerhouse that runs all of these at Washington and Mason Streets is also now home to the Cable Car Museum, which was established in 1974, You can go in there and see the machinery that runs the underground cables, plus lots of retired cable car models, lots of other information about San Francisco history and the history of the cable cars. I happened to walk directly past it after having climbed an incredibly steep hill and then gone down the other side, and I would have gone in there anyway, 
but it was particularly appealing to be in a flat place <laughs> for a few minutes. <laughs> do you have a little bit of listener mail for us? I do. This is a correction. It is from Teresa, and Teresa says, Dear Tracy and Holly, I absolutely adore your show, but as a check, I couldn't not notice a mistake in your statement. Quote, the violence started in Germany, then spread into Austria as well as Sudetenland, which Germany had recently annexed from the Austria-Hungarian Empire. Uh, That is from our episode on Kristallnacht. Sudetenland was annexed by the Munich Diktat from Czechoslovakia, not from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which fell apart in 1918 at the end of World War I. The establishment of Czechoslovakia was formally announced on October 28, 1918. The Munich Diktat, or as we often call it, the Munich Betrayal, is still a very painful part of Czech history. Czechoslovakia was basically informed by Great Britain and France that we could either fight Germany alone or submit to giving up our border regions to Germany. Our officials knew how hopeless and tragic a war against Germany would be for us, so they reluctantly capitulated on September 30th, 1938. Now, when I am thinking about it, this is a great episode suggestion, the Munich Diktat. Thanks for all the wonderful work you do. I listen to your show on my commute to work when I do chores or some laborious and boring stuff in the lab. I'm a scientist. Knowing that your episode is waiting for me makes me look forward to boring activities, even to washing dishes. Have a wonderful day, Teresa. Teresa, thank you for this note. A piece of this, not only did I know, but we have done a This Day in History class episode about the establishment of Czechoslovakia. What I did was, When I saw Sudetenland, I was like, okay, I got to refresh my memory about where exactly that was because I did not immediately recall. And the piece of information that my mind just sort of latched onto was its earlier history, not what was actually current by the time uh, we were leading up to World War II. So that was just my failure to follow through one piece of information to its logical conclusion. We have also gotten several emails from people living in Germany about how in Germany, Kristallnacht is not really called that anymore. It is called Reichspogromnacht, which means exactly what it sounds like, Reich, the Reichspogrom night. And uh, the term Kristallnacht is still basically ubiquitous in English language publications, including from uh, like Jewish history centers and the World Holocaust Museum and and all of that. So, In Germany, it is no longer widely used because it was basically a term that was coined by Nazis as a euphemism. And so uh, in in Germany, it's not typically used anymore for that reason. Outside of Germany, I don't think I found any source that did not use it. So um, there is a little disparity there. So thank you again, Teresa, for sending your note. And to the folks that have written to us about Reichspogromnacht, If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast or history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com, we are also on social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. Our website is MissedInHistory.com, where you will find show notes on all the episodes Holly and I have done together and a searchable archive of every episode ever. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 